Miroslav Wolf, the author of 17 books, teaches theology at Yale University, where he also directs the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. He taught previously in his home country of Croatia for eight years and at Fuller Seminary in California. Dr. Wolf received two degrees under the German theologian Jürgen Moltmann, and much of his teaching and scholarship is aimed at translating Christian theology and making it relevant and available to the broader culture, including our politics, economics, the arts, and interdenominational efforts. His 1996 book, Exclusion and Embrace, was named by Christianity Today as one of the 100 most influential books of the 20th century, and it challenges readers in light of Miroslav's own tragic early story to ask what it looks like in real life to love our enemy. This new book, rooted in a popular Yale undergrad course, is Life Worth Living, A Guide to What Matters Most, co-authored with Matt Crossman and Ryan McAnally Lentz, both fellow teachers. Joining Miroslav today to discuss the new book is Tim Alberta, a brilliant ascending journalist and best-selling author in his own right, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic. When Tim published American Carnage, a 2019 book about the Trump years and major fissures in the Republican Party, he was at the time chief political correspondent at Politico. And he's worked previously at the Wall Street Journal, the Hotline, National Journal, and National Review. At the moment, Tim's also working on a book provocatively titled The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. He said that at a recent Faith Angle event, he asked Miroslav for help on several parts of the book, and that the careful, substantive answers Miroslav offered forced him to go back and completely rewrite parts of the book. In 2002, Miroslav won the prestigious Meyer Award in Religion, and you'll hear why right away. Enjoy the conversation. Well, Miroslav, first of all, it's great to see you, great to hear your voice, and congratulations on publication. I know that this week is probably a bit of a whirlwind for you, so I'm grateful that you could take this window of time for us and entertain some of our questions. And I don't even know where to start. I could make a joke about having an hour to discuss the meaning of life, even though that's exactly what we're doing here is, is discussing the meaning of life, a life worth living, this book that you've written with your colleagues from Yale. And I suppose the best place to start is at the beginning. Before I drill into a number of, of specifics from the book, Miroslav, can you explain to us the inception of the project and how what began as a seminar course at Yale in a very intimate setting has grown into something far beyond Yale and is now on the pages of a book for anyone anywhere to read? Can you tell us about the beginning of the project? Tim, first, let me say it's so wonderful to see you, and I can see you even though our hearers cannot, and uh, to have this conversation with you. Thank you for taking the time, and thank you for this first question. So basically, that was a kind of realization that in the last 50 years or so, we have, as a culture and also in our educational institutions, pushed the question of the good life, of the flourishing 
a life of the life that is worthy of our humanity. There are many ways in which we can express that. We have pushed it more to the margins of our interest. What we have concentrated instead is to pursuing our own individual dreams. They're ours. We define what these dreams are, and we feel we don't need too much help to have those dreams somehow be really weighty, important. Uh, they are important because they are ours. And then we've shifted in most of our attention to trying to figure out the means that we need so as to be able to pursue those various dreams. And as a result, what used to be for centuries, the central question of the great religious traditions of uh, great philosophies namely this question of the good life, has been pushed to the margins and almost become irrelevant. It is at the margin of university education when I realized that I thought, wow, that used to be at the heart of founding of Harvard. That used to go and be at the heart of going straight through the tradition of American universities until 70s or so. And um, that is the most important question of our lives that is not being discussed at our premier educational institutions. And that was a kind of awakening, in a sense, that led me to start the class. So we've taught the class now for about 10 years. And the genius, or the challenge, actually, I should put it this way, a challenge for us was, how do you do this in a pluralistic setting? We know how to think about the good life as a communities that share a vision of the good. That's how we traditionally thought about that question. On the other side, people know how to talk about their dreams <laughs> and pursue kind of arbitrary goals for their lives. But how do you engage in the search for a life that is true, life that is good, life that is truly normatively worthy of your humanity in a pluralistic setting? That's what we've set up as. Um, conversation about, we call it a truth-seeking conversation about the shape of our humanity. I would be remiss not to say that for anyone listening, if you are reading in the early stages of this book, you may very well reach the conclusion that I reached in the early stages of this book, which is that not everyone is meant to attend Yale University. And yet, Right around the time you may be reaching that conclusion, you will read that, in fact, this coursework is also being undertaken not just by Ivy League collegiates, but by federal prisoners, which is a fascinating window into the sweep and the scope of this project. And Miroslav, I'm curious, before we get into some of the arguments, the ideas, the thematic specifics that animate this book, I'm wondering... From your experiences teaching both Ivy League collegiates and federal prisoners, what are some of the similarities and perhaps even some of the differences that you see in the human ability, regardless of educational levels, socioeconomic statuses, to wrap one's mind around a project that can seem so daunting and that yet is at the same time, as you say, so essential 
to our being. You know, that, that's a really interesting question, the differences between teaching the class in the prison and teaching it at Ivy League institution and in many other places where we have taught the class. What's interesting, and I think it's relevant to the ability to teach the, the class, there is strong interest in all of those settings, in those issues. At first, I thought maybe I need to persuade people that this is really an important question. And as soon as I've said a few sentences about why it matters, they realize that's important. Your life is too valuable to be frittered away on things that do not matter, to be guided by ideals that will leave you empty even when you realize them, let alone if you fail to realize them. Now, once one comes to this realization, it suddenly becomes uh, fairly easy to teach a class like that, which you just have to adjust it to the people's kind of text. You have to adjust to people's abilities and spheres of education and interest, and it runs smoothly. In fact, I think experiences of folks who taught it at the prison were in some ways the best of all experiences. In a sense, what is necessary often for the class and for reading the book is somehow sense that things aren't as going as well as we might want them to go. There is a, some kind of a break that is occurring in our lives. Students experience that in many ways. They've come to Yale. They've been at the top of their class. Now they are one in the mass and they feel the sense of their self-worth worth is being kind of challenged. And the question was, why was I going so hard in order to reach, come here to Yale, and I'm not exactly sure where I am, what am I supposed to be doing, where am I going? In the prison, the situation is very different. I know I have failed. And many experience themselves as what we sometimes call them, which is as criminals. And they realize that there's something not quite right, was not quite right in their lives, and they're happy to talk about what it is that kind of makes them fulfill their human calling. Miroslav, let's bring this down from 30,000 feet down to ground level, because I'm sure some listeners are wondering, what are these questions? What are these mysteries that we're trying to unravel here in the text, your book? And one of the foundational distinctions that you and your authors are making here is between happiness, you know, a happy life and a good life. Yes, we have come to believe that kind of happy, healthy, and long are the qualifiers of life. I mean, it's a happy, healthy, and long, then we've got the good life. And what we try to do in the book is try to call this a bit into question. For instance, about healthy. It's well known that Abraham Lincoln was suffering from depression. I think that would be a very rare person who would say that for that reason, he did not have and lead a good life. And you can do the same thing with, with happy, you can do the same thing with healthy. And what we then, then say is there are these components that each of our lives has, questions that we need to ask ourselves in order to break this big question from uh, being impossible, nebulous, uh, big and nebulous, to being uh, manageable. And uh, basically they concern, for instance, the vision of life. What kind of, what do we imagine under a good life. And uh, we basically say, well, the question that we have to ask ourselves, how does the life feel? How should the life feel? How should I lead my life? Here I am active in the world. 
how should my life go? Here I am a passive in life. So I need circumstances of life to be in a certain way. I need my agency activity. I need to do certain things well. And I need to have a certain kinds of feeling. And then we draw on various kind of resources to think about, well, how might be appropriate, for instance, for life to feel. Now, you might say, oh, a life feels well when there's pleasure. But is pleasure really what we ought to feel? Might not, you mentioned the word serenity, be something that's much more important? Or might not something like joy be more important? Now, pleasure and joy sometimes are confused, but you can say that difference might be like, something like this. I can take a pleasure pill but I can't take a joy pill. <laughs> chemically, I can induce pleasure, but chemically, I cannot induce joy. And the reason for that is that joy is always rejoicing, having good feelings about something good. So it's always related to the state in which I find myself. Now, we may then want to say, no, it's really joy that should define the good life. Or you might say, well, wait a second, Always joy might not be really important for you to be attuned to the circumstances of life. And then you would come to the position that, say, Apostle Paul advocated. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Now, suddenly it's much more complicated. It's not simply joy that's appropriate, but kind of empathetic attunement with the world becomes a kind of a goal of our emotional well-being. And we lead the readers through those various, various options so as to give them a toolkit in order to make informed decision about how their life should feel. The same we do with how we should act in the world. The same we do, how should our circumstances in life be? Because in some sense, any good life that we lead must be our own life. <laughs> and in that sense, a certain kind of choice, especially in the situation in which we find ourselves in, in late modernity, choice is essential to a good life. But the question is whether the choice should be simply guided by preference. <laughs> oh, I prefer that or by likes and dislikes. That's where the question of whim comes. In other words, question is, how do I make a responsible choice? And how do I put together the elements of life that actually will carry weight and represent something that's worthy of my effort, my striving, worthy of my humanity? And that's why we think that we need to school our judgment. We need to school our discernment process so that we know how to make uh, properly those kinds of choices because we are responsible. We are responsible selves. We are responsible to ourselves, presumably. Some of us feel we are responsible to God. Others of, of us feel that we are responsible to our families, families of origins, to our nations, whatever that may be source of responsibility. And that can be debated also. I think we need to take that into account and then try to discern what kind of life should we be choosing. Now, you can think of it various aspects of the good life as flavors of ice cream or kind of a smorgasbord that you have. And 
you can simply go and experiment with flavors of ice cream, and that's fine if you're tasting ice cream. But if you're living your life, it simply means that you're not taking seriously every moment in which you live. And hence, we need to have make those judgments in an informed way. You can also put different ingredients of the good life together. And just as with food, not all the ingredients sit well together. You may wish to have an ice cream and a Tabasco sauce, and maybe that's possible to have a great ice cream with the Tabasco sauce, but maybe you'll find it that these two kind of uh, clash with one another. It's great in a taco, but not on the top of vanilla ice cream. And we have to then think, what are the elements and how we put those elements together so as to build what we call a good life recipe, because many elements flow into what it means to lead and live one's life well. I'm so glad that you touched on the idea of responsibility, because this is another recurring theme throughout the book. And really, this question of responsibility is, I found it to be quite provocative in ways that I didn't expect. For instance, there's some imagery at one point in the book talking about if you were to walk past a child struggling in a a small, shallow amount of water, would you have a responsibility to that child? And the answer, I think, for most of us would be, of course. But the same instinct that tells us, of course, why does it not then apply to the child starving and sick halfway around the world who through a quick PayPal donation, you can help to save their life. Why do we not feel that same responsibility? So you and your co-authors, you invoke uh, on many occasions uh, Smokey the Bear and this question, you know, the idea of only you can prevent forest fires. So if we are in fact responsible for preventing forest fires, then what or how big is our forest? Uh, This is an incredibly interesting and provocative question. I'm wondering if you can help to walk the listeners through that. That's one of the central questions. One of the questions is, to whom am I responsible? Who asks me to act in a certain way in life? The other question is, as you are mentioning right now, the other question is the scope of responsibility. How far does my responsibility extend? And obviously, various answers have been given to this question, all the way to people who would want to argue that there is really no difference in principle between what you do for your own child and what you are responsible for any child anywhere in the world where you can send a donation and alleviate any suffering that that child might have. Is there such a thing as having a kind of more restricted sphere of responsibility? So that, for instance, it places where I can do most harm, I can do also most good, and I might be responsible in those places for those places more than I'm responsible in faraway places. How do I distribute my judgment, my resources between these two, far away and really close by? All of this, I think the book doesn't give you answers, but it tells you what is at stake and what you might want to take into consideration when making a judgment yourself. That's what Smokey the Bear also signifies for us. You're responsible, right? Meaning you have to make that choice. I can't make that choice for you. You have to make it, but make sure to make it in a way that you can honestly live by and because you have been informed by options which you could take. And what's at stake with this each option? 
You know, it may have been in your chapter on suffering and what you said about the book of Job that you drew sort of the limits of the connection between responsibility and suffering, that sometimes suffering just is. It isn't necessarily something that is caused by bad choices or the like. And I actually really love that chapter. You talked about a lot of different takes on why suffering exists, Buddha and attachment and James Baldwin and Islam and Nietzsche and his idea of sort of dual, you know, dual manifestations of, of suffering going along with happiness all the time necessarily together. Job and the idea of learning to sort of live with it. But I was really struck that you you ended, like a lot of journalists do, you ended with a story in describing the circumstances of Angela from your co-teacher uh, for several years at Yale and the loss of her brother who committed suicide and the pain of that and sort of how she presented that to the students and what it gave them and this idea that there should be a compass or an anchor that, that that's a takeaway from some of this reflection that's deeper. What's the importance of, I mean, honestly, as a didactic tool in our lives, in our relationships, how do you see the importance of story accompanying principles? I think stories are very important. And throughout the book, we have stories. Sometimes we argue with the help of the story, narrate significant events that people might be aware of, some that, that might not be. And in this way, uh, present not only the tensions that arise as we live our lives, but also the possibilities that open up for us. And especially when it comes to suffering, I think the, an argument can be made that Actually, none of us fully understands the suffering of another person. That each suffering is kind of unique to that person. And that we ought to honor that kind of uniqueness. And the principles often are hard to apply in the unique situations, right? They end up not quite fitting. Always there's something, it's almost like you have a suitcase that is overstuffed and there's always, there's maybe a sleeve that's hanging out that you can't quite close. So sometimes our theories are just such overfilled suitcase. Life won't be stuffed into the theory. It's larger than the theory. And in that way, uh, stories sometimes come to our help in the sense that they create a kind of a connection notwithstanding the difference. And we then are able to deal and with our own suffering in the light of the story that we were told. In some ways, this is the book of Job. It's a story of a man. Something happened to him, and it's in the process of his wrestling, our knowing about his wrestling with suffering, that we learn what it might mean for us to wrestle with the question of suffering. Miroslav, I'm struck by, you were saying a moment ago that the book is not meant to provide answers, but rather ask these fundamental questions that uh, so often go unasked. And yet there are, I think, pivotal moments in the book where, again, re regardless of background, regardless of individual experience and perspective, that the reader is sort of funneled at least towards a certain set of answers that are almost inescapable. And particularly around notions of material comfort and any correlation or lack thereof to happiness, to contentment, to the good life, as you describe it. This question of, and again, through my own individual perspective, I think of you know, Mark 8, 836, and, and what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? You repeatedly return to this interrogation of the relationship between means and ends. And 
uh, so often it is in the context of the pursuit of material wealth and financial security. Is that, in fact, so that you can take that financial security and use it to bless others and use it for the greater good as a means to that end? Or does it, in fact, at some point, just give way to, quite nakedly, to end in and of itself? It's hard to imagine anyone reading those portions of the book and reaching a conclusion other than to be really quite skeptical of the commingling of those means and ends. And I'm curious in your experience with the students and with others, how often those conversations specifically around means and ends come back to those conclusions around money and around financial security, material comfort. You cite some interesting polling with college students who overwhelmingly are most interested and most oriented towards that financial security, much more than any other aspiration or goal in their young adulthood. So can you center us on that specific question as you've tried to explore it? Yeah, that's a very interesting question, important question, partly also because one of the features of the modern life is that since we cannot agree on the goals on the purposes, on what the good life is as a society and as a culture, we stress the acquisition of means. And those can be knowledge as means, kind of educational capital, so to speak. Those can be reputational capital, various forms of capital. But then the most important of those means is in fact money. And reason why it's most important, because it's kind of generalized means. It can get you access to any other means that you might have. And that becomes then uh, very important in people's lives because means are so important in people's lives. And what we can observe very well, and we could observe that through the centuries, but particularly observe it now, is that means often become their own ends. And you gestured toward that issue so that we suddenly are in search for means to live a life uh, that we would consider good, but the means take over and we become obsessed with those means so that we uh, never, in fact, end up living a good life. Now, that seems to be, though we do not give many answers in the book, but there is an agreement among just about all traditions, that this is a problematic step, and especially problematic in today's environment, because we live also in a time when time is speeding up. Sociologists call that acceleration as a feature of modernity. And so one of the sociologists, German sociologist Hartmut Rosa, said that in modern times, we find ourselves in a situation where we, in spite of monetary and technological influence, most of us are afflicted by temporal insolvency. We might have money, we might have technological means, we don't have time. We're running always behind. But that's a, almost like a definition of a squirrel wheel or hamster wheel, uh, you say, we call it squirrel wheel in Croatia. Hamster wheel, right? You are running, and more you run, the faster you have to uh, run. And I think it was Kenneth Goldbright who once said, nobody has seriously entertained the idea of a hamster wheel as a metaphor for the good life. <laughs> 
And I think that's a generally recognized principle. And yet we find ourselves almost inextricably forced into that kind of a hamster wheel. One of the goals of the book is precisely to make us think and realize this hamster wheel is detrimental to us. We are losing the weight of our humanity in the sheer attempt to run in order to have more means to achieve ends, which we never seek to achieve because we are running to achieve more means. And that point, I think, perhaps more than any other, does come across quite clearly, again, not as an answer, but as a sort of consensus framework through which to answer other questions. As we move towards closure, Miroslav, I want to hone in faith specifically as it animates and permeates this project. It is, of course, and and you and your co-authors write this early on in the book, that, that you are all Christians, but there is a responsibility you have to the students and to the discourse to remain as neutral as one can remain in facilitating this sort of a dialogue. And I was fascinated in reading it as a Christian myself in how often I had to try to challenge myself to elevate beyond my own theological views, my own doctrinal convictions, and try to view these things to the extent that I even could as detached from those spiritual predispositions of my own. I'm curious, as you We're teaching this course to students from all sorts of different backgrounds, religious backgrounds, non-religious backgrounds. Did you notice any trend lines or any sort of reoccurring patterns with students either becoming more drawn to specific faiths or at least if not suddenly having dramatic conversions and pledging allegiance to a new faith or a religious tradition than at least wanting to know more and learn more and become more invested in the religions of the world at a time when these younger generations are, as we know, just sort of quantitatively disinterested and disengaged from organized religion at historic and unprecedented levels. And so I'm fascinated at the intersection of those two trends here as you teach at a secular university to students from these varying backgrounds. That is a very, very good question. And in many ways, it's kind of at the core of what we are doing. This kind of idea that even though I'm a committed Christian, and if you ask me what in my life matters the most, I would tell you Jesus told the story of this merchant who saw a pearl of great price. And that merchant sold everything he had in order to buy that pearl. That's me. I would be willing to sell everything to hold on to that pearl of great price. At the same time, I find that just because I'm holding that pearl of great price, I have also responsibility to, if you want, referee a conversation in an impartial way. (laughs) Because that pearl of great price is the truth and commits me to be truthful, right? And that commitment to truthfulness commits me to make sure that I do not twist the positions of anyone else. There is a small, I think it's one of the smallest commandment in the Bible that doesn't count as a commandment, but nonetheless is really important. And that comes in 1 Peter. And the commandment is honor everyone. One sentence, two words, honor everyone, which is to say honor also 
the Buddha, <laughs> in a sense of make sure that you don't twist, you don't distort, you don't present in a way that isn't appropriate, that people wouldn't recognize. And so we kind of do this very conscientiously. And the result, I think, is because for ourselves and for the students that I have come to appreciate more the depth of the tradition, because I've tried to look at them from their best side. How would an advocate of a religious tradition express it themselves? I want them to recognize themselves in my characterization. Now, that means that I need to grow into deeper understanding, and that can happen only through a certain kind of appreciation. For me, that, of course, has been result in growth in appreciation for Confucianism, from Buddhism, and so forth. For students, it is also so, and I think that contributes to the civil kind of discourse between them, because that's what we are also teaching them. Basically, how do you talk well, discourse well, argue well across the lines of abiding difference? You do so by honoring the person. You do so by honoring the views to the extent of not distorting them. And that results in a certain increased level of appreciation without necessarily, in my case, for instance, diluting the idea that I'm committed to what I'm committed and my commitment has been enriched. So I think that's what happened with most of the students. All the views that they represented, they have tended to go away, certainly appreciating more than they did before they came to the class. They may disagree again with them, but that's, uh, they're on the journey. I'm on the journey. And that's simply all right, which doesn't mean that they have necessarily now chosen organized religion, but they have come to appreciate what the core of religious, that religious tradition has to say to who they are, how the world should be, how we should be together as humanity. One of our friends, David Frum, talks sometimes about how are we more polarized than we used to be? Well, in 1965 to 75, our culture was probably more divided than it is today. Social fissures of many kinds and so forth. But our politics pulled us together in that time, ultimately, you know. And it feels like he said today we're more culturally, maybe, as Miroslav was saying, we have so much to be, you know, economic wealth and benefits of many kinds. We have a lot, lot in common with our neighbor, but our politics, by contrast, seems to be what's dividing us a little bit more. So the opposite play for our politics. Is that right? You wrote American Carnage, Tim. Do you see our politics unraveling rather than weaving us together a little more so today? And, and how does that trend play at, at Yale when you want young people to go into public service? Well, I would quickly just say because I'd love Miroslav's thoughts on the last part of what you just said there, Josh. But I think to the degree that political identity defines us, we are in a very different place today than we were just a generation ago, certainly, you know, two or three or four generations ago. There is a willingness on the part of a huge share of the American populace at this point to uh, lead with that political identity and to make that political identity sort of uh, inextricable from their sense of self, from their sense of community. And, and there is, of course, a huge body of 
growing social science research all around this idea, uh, this phenomenon of self-selection and how we are immeasurably more likely today to be living in neighborhoods and towns and counties and congressional districts and shopping at grocery stores and viewing movies and watching sitcoms and buying makes and models of different vehicles that are in line with the political tribe to which we belong than we would have been just 15 or 20 years ago, certainly more than 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. And so I think that piece of it is, is indisputable. And I do wonder for a younger generation that is, again, historically disinclined to identify with any sort of faith background, if that trend isn't only going to accelerate because in the absence of any strong identification with a faith background, or at least with a very strong ethical background, that framework that we've been discussing here, then in that void, politics can so easily rush in and fill it. And down that path, more polarization and more antagonism and sort of alienation lies. Miroslav, how do you view that from where you're teaching at Yale? Yeah, that, that's a very interesting. I appreciate very much your comment about it from the kind of um, a cultural, logical, sociological reflection on the polarization in uh, political, in particular polarization in American society. You know, as to your just last part of your question, I think that the young people, as I experience them, are a bit cynical about what's happening in, in the political kind of realm. And they see this as a, a kind of identity-based power struggle that often doesn't correspond to kind of deep issues that need to be addressed. Some of them are also taken up into kind of politically curated version of issues that face us, but most of them kind of push back against that. You know, my suspicion would that the course would encourage people to get involved because they would come away from most of these visions, accounts of the good life, with a sense that somehow orientation to oneself and to one's tribe, there's something deficient in a strong identification of the good life with life for oneself and simply for one, one's own tribe. I think, and maybe that's my wishful thinking, that that's what I would hope, but as a Christian myself, I'm with folks like Karl Barth, who said that Christians, if they're properly Christians, will be unreliable allies to any political party or the power, that power of the state. And they will be unpredictable critics of it as well, right? Which is to say, they won't fall in line with political divisions, but rather will have a kind of broader moral compass, which will allow them or push them to stand in contrast with the kind of hardened polarizations that have emerged. And my sense would be that that's the, the great philosophical and religious traditions all share that position because they all share a kind of moral framework that is above the political fray. The life life that's worth living is not reducible to politics. There's more to life than politics, and politics ought to serve the good life rather than life be 
placed in the service of kind of polarized uh, politics. Miroslav, I could speak to you about this for hours, and I will, in fact, reserve the right to bother you offline about so many of these questions that I am now trying to answer for myself and as a father and a husband and as a believer. And I'm so grateful for the book. And one of the things that kept coming to my mind as I was reading it was that, you know, you are a a towering figure in your field. And no doubt so many of these students have come to you and to your colleagues in search of these answers in their own lives as they seek to grow and become wiser and better citizens, better members of the human race. And I was interested at various points as you and your colleagues describe some of the eureka moments that your students have had along the way. But it also made me wonder whether Miroslav had any eureka moments along the way in teaching the course. I mean, it's this well-worn trope, of course, from professors and from the teachers that they learn as much from the students as the students learn from them. But I suspect that in your case, it actually is true. So I wonder, in the years since you've undertaken this project, Miroslav, if there has been one great change in you or one great development in you that you attribute to the pursuit of the truth here as you've laid it out. Most of my learning was a kind of of the micro-movement level. (laughs) I learn almost every day from students how they approach things, perspectives that they might have, vantage points from which to look at things, which sometimes is even more important than any substantive material that they might give. But I'll give you the story that's connected with the book, and that's We've talked a lot about the chapter on responsibility. You mentioned that's one of the really important chapters in your reading, and indeed, that's a kind of pivotal chapter. When we started teaching the class, we did not have a from our questions that we, when we have broken out the big question, we have broken them in how does life feel? How do you lead your life? How, what kind of circumstances should there be? What reasons a particular tradition gives you? What kind of help do they give you? And what happens when you fail? Kind of those were our six questions. Then we had a retreat, and students were getting to know each other on a, on a retreat uh, away from campus, each telling the stories of what, how they conceive at the early point in class of the good life. And then in the middle of that, there was a Jewish woman who stood up and said, you know, as I was thinking about listening to what you were saying, I was wondering, to whom do you feel you are responsible? Everybody shook their heads a little bit and thought, well, to whom am I responsible? And then she proceeded to talk about uh, her responsibility to God, but also to the Jewish people and the tradition and so forth, and invited other students to do the same. And it was a fantastic uh, conversation, as you can imagine. Next time when we taught the class, the question, to whom are you responsible, was one of the leading questions, <laughs> because it kind of rooted the people in what is kind of the bedrock, what is that out of which, on which everything else stands. And that was a great learning moment. I can't help telling this real quick, you know, the, the line, you've heard this probably, Miroslav, that when a Unitarian stands up and prays, to whom do they pray? The answer is, To whom it may concern. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Hey, thanks, Tim. Thanks, Miroslav. Good luck with the book. Thanks for coming by. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Tim, especially to you. And stay in touch. I'd love to be in conversation with those things with you. (laughs) 
Faith Angle exists to connect leading theologians, scholars, and clerics with leading journalists, who in turn help the rest of us to see more clearly. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.